Eddie Brock is an investigative reporter. And he's, uh, he's bent on taking down evil, corporate greed, whatever else, until he is taken by evil. He's taken over by an alien, a, a symbiote is what they call him, and Venom is a parasite. It's, uh, he and Eddie share Eddie's body, and Venom likes to eat people. No apologies about it. Venom likes to eat people. Eddie, Eddie tries to reason with Venom, and he tells him, hey, man, you just can't eat people. But the parasite lived by a different set of rules. The parasite says, we will do what we want. And then he says, we are venom. And so this is a modern day adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. If you don't know the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is is about a man who decides to separate. He finds a way to separate both the good side of him and the bad side of him. And he does it with a potion. He drinks a potion. And during the day, he is Dr. Jekyll. He's everything good about himself. But by night, he turns into Mr. Hyde. And everything that is evil in him comes out and he sees his evil side. And just like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in Venom, uh, you see this, he's wrestling with this inner voice in his head, right? And, and here's the point. Evil is within all of us. Just not if you think that's true. And if you don't think that's true, it's in you. Trust me. Uh, evil's inside all of us. And, and, and so we deal with that. The actor Tom Hardy said this. He said his character learns how to negotiate an ethical framework in a world full of gray. By the end of the movie, which you saw there, uh, he's trained Venom to only eat the bad guys, which is, you know, an improvement, I guess. But Eddie Brock's story and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde's story is really our story. It's all of our story. We're like that. Greg Morris writes this. He says, doing wrong comes more naturally for us. With minds bent towards lust and tongues that stab our closest relations, eyes fixed unflinchingly upon ourselves, fists that shake at their creator, hearts are too often, uh, that too often shelter our inner demons, we are venom. We're venom. And God agrees. So today we're going to look at how we respond to that evil inner voice because I'm calling this the struggle is real. The struggle is real. It's a, it's a real thing. And so we are going to look at the book of Romans. If you've got a Bible or a device with you, I would invite you to open to the book of Romans. We are in chapter 7. We are going to do the whole chapter today. So buckle up and let's get to it. You ready? Here we go. Chapter 6 last week, Glenn was talking about sin. And we learned how... Uh, In chapter 6, we saw since we have this great grace in Jesus Christ, right? And it covers over a multitude of our sins. The question became, well, why can't we just go on sinning? I mean, what's the point of being good? And Paul uses this illustration of slavery at the end of chapter 6. Now, last week, we asked some of you to fill out some cards and to just throw them into this basket. And it said on the cards, I am no longer a slave to. I am no longer a a slave to fear and anxiety. I am no longer a slave to pornography and lustfulness. I am no longer a a slave to fear and anger. I'm no longer a slave to greed. I'm no longer a slave to pride and lust. So here's my question for you. How did that go for you last week? I mean, you put the card in the basket, right? It was over for you, right? You didn't have any of those temptations. Am I right, everybody? We're completely free of sin now that we've put our thing in the basket and and gave it to God. I'm no longer a slave to that. Or are you like me? You're still a little bit of a slave to that thing. Like, the honest truth is we're still a little bit of a slave. And the truth in Romans is so was Paul and so am I. 
And no matter how long I've been following Jesus Christ, I'm still a slave to some of those sins. Glenn talked about besetting sins last week. These sins that are kind of pesky, persistent, and, and repetitive sins, and they've got a grip on us. And I'm still a slave to some of those sins. And so we're going to look this morning at chapter 7, and we are going to start with the law, the Old Testament law, and Paul is going to use an illustration of marriage. So we're going to begin with chapter 7, and here's the first part of this. This is the struggle with the law. Now before we begin, I maybe need to remind you of something going on in this church in Rome. There were two groups of people in the church in Rome. Uh, The church was... uh, The first group was a group of Jewish believers. They were people that had grown up in the Jewish tradition. They had known the Jewish law. They had lived with the Jewish law growing up. And they had come to know Jesus as the Messiah and embraced him as Christ and became Christians. Most of them were probably the leaders of this early church. They were used to being religious and understood it. But then they got kicked out of Rome. They were expelled from Rome. The Caesar at the time said, I don't want them here. Get them out. And everybody, whether you liked it or not, had to leave Rome. And at that time, there was a vacuum of leadership in the church. So all of these Gentile or non-Jewish believers became the leaders of the church at that point. And so for about five years, five years later, the Caesar said, uh, Jews, well, actually the Caesar died and the Jews came back. They all came back into this church that looked very different from the church they had started. Suddenly they didn't care about the Jewish laws so much anymore. Wasn't that important to these Gentile Christians? And Paul's going to address that here with this illustration from marriage. Take a look in your outline, chapter 7, verse 1. It says, now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with what? The law. Don't you know the law applies only to a person, only while a person is what? Living. For example, when a woman marries... The law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the law of marriage no longer applies to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So my dear brothers and sisters, what does it say? This is, I love it when the Bible says this is the point. You can just go, this is the point. Here it is. You died to the power of the law when you died with who? Christ. And now you are united with the one who has raised from the dead. And as a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. Now get this. When we were controlled by our what? Old nature, sinful desires were at work within us. And the law, it says, aroused these evil desires. It's interesting. That produced a harvest of what? Sinful deeds, resulting in what? Resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve who? God. Not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the spirit. So here's the deal. The law has no power over us. It has no power over death. Um, Just like you don't give a speeding ticket to a dead guy. Am I right? Doesn't help, doesn't do anything. Uh, but I don't, get, I don't want you to get the wrong idea about the law because it's super important to understand this. In Matthew chapter five, we see this. It says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to what? Abolish law. I didn't come to abolish the law, Jesus says, of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to, what is he supposed to do? Accomplish the purpose. I know you people are still waking up. That's okay, I understand. 
accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So when Jesus came, Jesus fulfilled the law. And the law no longer has power over us. It's a little bit like the marriage vows that you made. That's the illustration, right? You say, until death do us part, and when death comes, the vows no longer apply anymore. If, if you lose a spouse and you've got a lot of years left in your life, you are free to remarry somebody else because, uh, because that's, the, that's the deal. And, and this is just an illustration. I want to make sure you understand that. Just an illustration of how we are free from the law. Now, here's the thing. As you read that passage, if the law isn't count anymore, if the law isn't good anymore, in fact, it says these crazy things. The law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds, resulting in death. Then the question is, well, what's the point? I mean, what's the point of the Ten Commandments? What's the point of the 603 other Old Testament laws? I mean, why do we even have the Old Testament laws? Well, let me give you the purpose of the Old Testament laws. The purpose of the Old Testament laws are both a blessing and a curse. They're a blessing in this. They show us how to live right. They show us how we live right. Can you agree that if we lived, if everyone lived by the Old Testament laws, this would be a pretty good place? Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, there'd be no bacon. I get it. But if you live by all the Old Testament laws, it would be a pretty good place. There'd be no lying. There'd be no cheating. There'd be no stealing. That sounds like pretty good. The problem is, is no one can keep the law. And so it's not only a blessing, but it's also a curse. We cannot keep the law. We just can't do it. And if you break the law, you're a lawbreaker. That's, that's the nature of it. If you are a lawbreaker at that point. Galatians 3.10 says it this way. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under what? They're under his curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is who? Everyone who does not observe and obey how many? All the commands that are written in God's book of the law. Now, Galatians here is quoting Deuteronomy 27, 26. That's in the Old Testament law. It's where all these laws are written. And nobody read the fine print. Nobody read the fine print. If, if we're cursed, if, if the law is our, is our deal, we're cursed. And who's cursed? Everyone's cursed, right? And, and you're cursed if you just, if you do pretty good. How many of the laws you got to keep? All of the laws. You got to keep them all. So trying to keep the law is impossible. It can't be done. And it shows us how to love, but we can't do it. And so it shows us in this next section, the struggle we can't win. This is the struggle we can't win. Romans chapter seven, verse seven. Stay with me here. Well then, I, am I suggesting the law of God is sinful? What's the answer? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that what? It showed me my sin. I would have never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. But sin used this command to, what does it say? Arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have had that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin, what? It came to life, and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring what? Life, brought what instead? Spiritual death instead. 
Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still, the law itself is what? Holy. And its commands are holy and what? And what else? It's holy, right, and good. It says, but how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. Now, Paul is, I, I, Paul is brilliant, but also ADD. He's just all over the place sometimes. You, you see the point, though, here. The point is this. Is the law bad? No. Is the law holy? Yes, the law is holy. It teaches us how to live right, and it also teaches us so we know what sin is. God's law reveals our sin. That's what it does. When we look at it, we understand that we are sinners. That's how it, that's how it works. It reveals our sin. Let's look at the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Ten Commandments, I like this version of the Ten Commandments. It's faster, it's simpler. Uh, this is called the Southern Ten Commandments. Here they are. You ready? Just one God. Put nothing before God. Watch your mouth. Get yourself to Sunday meeting. Honor your mom, Paul. No killing. No fooling around with another feller's gal or another gal's feller. Don't take what ain't in yourn. No telling tales or gossiping. And lastly, don't be hankering for your buddy's stuff. You got that? We all understand each other? Are we good on that? Okay. I think when we look at that list, though, most of you think, hey, I'm doing pretty good. I, I'm doing all right, man. I got, I'm about, I'm an eight, I've got eight of those. I'm probably an eight and a half because I don't gossip unless it's really juicy. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm an eight and a half, probably. And that's, that's pretty, eight and a half to B plus. I think I'm, I'm doing all right here, right? And you think, well, God must be excited with an eight, right? He must be delighted with an eight. And then at the end, God throws in coveting. And, and Paul, you notice, uses the same illustration, the same example. He talks about coveting. And the question is why? And this is just my own personal opinion. I sort of think that pride and coveting are the root of every other sin. That's sort of what I think. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, when you steal something, it's because you covet something else that somebody has that you want. When you commit adultery, it's because you're coveting to have sex with somebody that wasn't given to you in marriage. When you lie about something, what you're really coveting is that somebody would still have a good impression of you, even though you don't really deserve it. So let me just stretch the truth. Let me just change the, I don't want to get in trouble. I covet not getting in trouble, so let me just lie about that. That's what coveting does. And, and the funny thing, we all covet one way or another inside of us. We are venom. We've got it inside of us. You may keep eight, but nobody keeps all 10. Nobody keeps all 10. And forget about the 603 others after these 10. No one measures up. It's a little bit like those signs. There it is. It's a little bit like those signs. How many people remember going to the amusement park and you really wanted to ride the ride and there was the guy with the hand and you are almost there? Anybody remember that? Almost there, and you did the tippy toes, and you did the faux hawk, you put your hair up, you did whatever you could, you tipped the gride attendant or something like that. You know, we all, but we, we don't measure up. None of us measures up. Nobody is tall enough. In fact, 
The law wasn't given so that you could get taller. The law was given so that you'd realize how short you are. That's what it's about. You know, when Jesus came and he taught on the law and he was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, you heard Jesus say things like, and I thought it was super interesting, Jesus would say, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, don't even get angry with your brother. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, don't even look lustfully at another woman. You've heard it said, hey, you're supposed to uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I'm telling you, you've got to love your enemy and you've got to pray for those who persecute you. Here's the question. Do you think Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was coming to make the law even harder? Or do you think he was just trying to point out, you'll never live up to the law. You'll never live up to the law. And that's why you need a savior. That's why you need me. So if no one measures up, Right? And no one can keep the law. It leaves us in a bit of a pickle. It leaves us with this, what I'll call the struggle within. The struggle within. And here it is in the scriptures. You ready? 14 through 20, some of these verses you are going to resonate with. Are you ready? So the trouble is not what the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with who? Me. For I am all too human, a slave to sin. I love these verses. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. He continues on, repetitive. And I know that nothing good lives where? In me. That is in my what? Sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I... Can I get an amen out of anyone? Right? Uh, but, if, but if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. Doesn't that sound like the ultimate little kid excuse at the end? Mommy, I didn't want to steal the cookie. It was sin living in me. That's what I'm talking about here. These verses, um, Paul's not, I want to make sure we understand each other. Paul is not talking about some alien symbiote that's inside of us. Paul's not talking about the devil or a demon within you. Paul's talking about you. It's you and you battling against you. Does that make sense? It's not, there's no, nothing else except my sinful nature and my re, new life in Jesus Christ. And they're battling against each other at all times. Somehow it, it didn't sneak into me. It's not venom. It's not we are venom. It's I am venom, if that makes sense. Um, it's me against me. I always tell people my life verse. When people ask, hey, what's your life verse? My life verse is Philippians 1.21. And it's for, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. But if I'm completely honest, my life verse is this verse. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. You never see that verse on a coffee mug. You never see it on a, on a rustic tin sign at Hobby Lobby. They don't sell it, can I just tell you? But the truth of the matter is, is we probably all need a coffee mug on our desk. That's, oh yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, it happens to me every day. That's, that's what it is. The struggle is real, man. The struggle is real. So let's look at the struggle and uh, take a look at it for a few minutes here because the struggle is real and it's everybody's struggle. So here is the struggle. Ready? Here's the first way we struggle with this. We say things like, I'm not like that. 
I mean, I'm not like that. If we're honest about it, we are are masters of self-deception, right? We take our worst moments and we brush them off and make excuses for them. We take our worst moments and we say uh, things like, I don't know, I don't know how that happened. I, I mean, that's just not like me. I mean, I am normally not like that. And my question for you is, really? Then what are you normally like? Go ahead, tell me what you're normally like. Now, this has never happened to me personally. I mean, I've read about it, but I, but I hear that there are some people who are short with their spouse sometimes when they're tired or irritable. Has that happened to anyone here? Right, like I, I you, you're short with your spouse, and you're like you're just sort of annoying, and and uh, and and then you say to yourself, "Oh man, that's not me." Here it is. Yes, it is. It's you. You know, no, no, I'm not normally like that. Yes, yes, you are. You really are like that. Like that's how it works. Like, and your spouse knows, by the way, just so you understand. Your spouse knows, and and, and you say that, but. What you're saying, really, when you say, well, that's not really me, is here's what you're actually saying. You're saying, you know, when I'm not stressed out and I have lots of energy to fake it, then I'm a nice guy. Then I'm a nice guy. I mean, when I'm fresh and relaxed and ready, then I'm a nice guy. But if I've got any, if I'm worn down, if I'm, the truth of the matter is, is when you don't have the energy, the real you comes out. Listen to Ecclesiastes 7.20. It says this. Maybe Ecclesiastes 7.20 didn't make it into the PowerPoint. Is in your notes? Not a single person on earth is what? Always good. And what else? Never sins. Not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. Get this. We are all sinners. Look at the person next to you. Look at that person next to you. You see them? Sinner. Sinner. They are. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, look at them, right? Look at the person. Now look at yourself. Ah, I'm not that bad, right? I'm better than that guy. I mean, the problem is we don't take responsibility for our sins. We rationalize our sins. And we like to rationalize our own behavior. So, if we always, here's the problem with that. If we always say, well, that's not really me. That's not who I am. I'm not like that. You will never see the need for a savior. You'll never see that you need Jesus. You are like that. Some people think I'm different. I'm different. I can handle temptation. I can handle that. I really don't need to watch out for that like you do, right? I can flirt with danger. I can play with fire. Uh, I don't need to worry. I don't, I don't need to be real. I can just, because I'm different. I'm different. I don't need accountability. I don't need that software in my computer. I don't need an accountability partner. I don't need to worry about having, you know, alcohol in the house or, or, or a little bit of this or a little bit of that. It won't be, I can be a little flirtatious with the girl at the office. I'm different. It'll be fine. It'll never happen to me, right? First Corinthians 10, 12 says this. It says, if you think you are standing strong, boy, we got some verses to fix for second service. Sorry, you people are the test audience. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, if you think you are what? Standing strong, be careful not to fall. Can I tell you something? This is very real and very true. The moment you think it can't happen to you, you just took an enormous step towards it happening to you. The moment you think you're different, you're not. It can happen to you. So don't be arrogant, don't be proud, don't be stupid. You're not different. The last one is this, we focus on the wrong enemy. 
The struggle is real, man, and we focus on the wrong enemy. Rather than looking inward we, and battling this enemy within, we look outward and we tend to battle the people around us. If I blame you for my responses, then I don't have to look inside. I don't have to own them myself, right? We all have buttons, right? You got different buttons. I, I, we different buttons for different people. But if somebody finds your button, look out. Am I right about that? If somebody finds your button and they just press your button, you are in trouble, right? That was easy. Hey, hey, did you you hear what Biden did today? That was easy, right? You say you say to your, uh, hey, are are you actually going to wear that? That was easy. Hey, why do you always have to be on your phone? That was easy. The worst is when you say that to your spouse, why do you always have to be on your phone and your spouse answers back, oh, that's great, I'm starving. That was easy. Your boss says to you, hey, hey, I'm going to really need you to put some real effort into this next project. That was easy. And it ticks you off, right? And this is the worst one of all. Oh my goodness, if there's parents in the room, I don't want to trigger anyone here. But when they say it, it is so easy and it pushes every button inside of me. They say, whatever, dad. That was easy. And I'm like, I will. Don't make me. I... And here's the problem is, do you know who we blame when somebody presses our buttons? We blame the person that pressed the buttons. And you want to know the truth? It's your button. It's your button. You don't have to react that way. When my kid says whatever, dad, I can say whatever back. <laughs> but I, I don't. But uh, the truth of the matter is, is that it, you go off and you blame the other person for pushing your button. And it's your button. Somebody could say the same exact thing to someone else and nothing would happen. But you, bam, you explode. You explode. And we focus on the wrong enemy. We battle against others. And sometimes as Christians, the Christian community can do this. We will battle against all of society. The world out there, you want to know what's wrong with the world out there? As a community, we decide, well, we're going to clean up the world around us, right? We're going to clean up the sin on the outside instead of actually looking at the sin on the inside. Sometimes as Christians, we want to pass laws to change things so that non-Christians will have to live as Christians, which is sort of crazy if you think about it. But instead of looking inside and going, oh, you know what's wrong with me? You know what sin has gripped me? You know what I've got going on inside of me? Because the problem is here. It's not out there. It's always been right here in our heart. But we are so focused on sin on the outside that we ignore the sins on the inside. James talks about this in chapter 1. And remember when you are being tempted, do not say who? God isn't tempting you. Sometimes the wrong enemy is God. It's not God is tempting you. He's not doing this to you. Because God is never tempted to do wrong. And he never tempts who? He never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own what? Desires which entice us and drag us away. And these desires give birth to what? Sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. James uses a fishing illustration of lures. If you're a fisherman, you know lures attract certain kind of fish, and other fish will just swim right by the wrong kind of lure. And the thing that lures you may not lure me. I don't struggle with that 
at all. Be, oh, I'm struggling. If you ever share your struggles with somebody, you say, oh, I don't struggle with that at all. My response is, well, good for you, twinkle toes. You know, like, I don't, I don't need your, I can feel you judging me right now. You know what I mean? Like, the truth of the matter is, we all got it. And something lures us and it drags us away. And when it grows, it leads to death. So, let's get to the last part of this, which is the struggle we can't lose. The struggle we can't lose. Because this struggle is raging inside of us. It says this. The end of the chapter here says, I have discovered this principle of life. That when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. And this power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Verse 24 says, Oh, what a miserable person I am who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death. Okay, let's pray. No, verse 25. Man, we took all 25 verses, but we finally got there. Verse 25, it says what? Thank God. The answer is in who? Because he's our? So you see how it is in my mind. I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am what? Thank God for verse 25. There's an answer to this dilemma, to this struggle, and it is Jesus Christ. And that leads me to? So what, Steve? Well, here's the answer. Ready? The struggle is real. The struggle is real. And the struggle is also permanent. The struggle is not going away. You see, I think many Christians believe that the Christian life is a little bit like a boiling pot, a pot of water. And before you know Jesus, your life is sort of cold. And, and, uh, and, and then you, you get to know Jesus and, and you begin to warm up. And, and then, you know, after you start to warm up, maybe you, get, you come to know Christ and you, you basically you get baptized and, and the water's heating up and, and you go on a retreat and you're just really fired up. And maybe you come to a worship service and boy, the worship team is just singing heart music for you and you are just warm. God starts answering prayers in your life and all of a sudden you are like, you are boiling, man. And that's awesome. And then, and then at some point in your life, you, you know, church starts to sort of feel normal and it's a little bit like you drop some ice in the and you're, you're not as hot as you used to be. And, and maybe that prayer you've been praying isn't getting answered. And, and then maybe that sin, that sin that's always been there in your life, suddenly starts to crop up in a new way. And the next thing you know, you're cooled off. Right? And it's not working like it used to work anymore. Um, I don't think this is the best analogy for the Christian life. Especially not for this passage. For this passage, I would like to offer you maybe a different idea. It's a little bit like your life is this water here and, and Christ comes into your life and he changes you, right? He changes you. From the inside out, he begins to change you and he changes the color and the flavor of your life. But get this. At the same time, I really should have put one of those table things here. All that sin and junk that's been in your life, it's still there. 
And it's incompatible with the life of Christ. It's just like oil and water. They, they separate and they can't possibly um, do what they need to do together. And, and every once in a while they get stirred together a little bit. But you know what they're going to do. They're going to separate again. The sinful you is still in there. You've always been in there. You always will be in there, right? And, and you've got Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde still living in you, even when you're following Christ. You still have venom in your veins. That's what you have. This old nature, if you let it, it will continue to sprout up and act up and wreak havoc on your life. The same vengeful predator is there. We are venom. So, as you walked in today, what, here's the question. What do you struggle with? Because there's two kinds of people who walked in here today. And here's the so what for you. The first is this. Quit, quit beating yourself up. I think the hard part is, is there's people who walk into church. And, and my good friend, Ian Bender, uh, while we were preparing for this message, he, he gave me this line. He said, if God's grace is good enough for me, it's good enough for anyone. And trust me, if God's grace is good enough for Ian, it's good enough for you. Trust me, okay? Uh, if God's grace is good enough for Paul, this is the apostle Paul we are talking about here, right? Remember Paul. And Paul's talking about this struggle within. Is he talking about the struggle within you or is he talking about the struggle within him? He's talking about the struggle within him. If Paul struggles with this, you're going to continue to struggle with this. The problem is, is people walk into church and they're feeling like a sinner and they're hiding it. I, I feel like a sinner, but I, if I can just hide it for an hour and get out of here, then I'll be all right, right? Like they don't belong, like God can't possibly work in their life, like God can't possibly use them because they're a sinner. And they get discouraged and they walk out the door. Like somehow church is going to fix you. <laughs> it's not going to fix you. You say, I tried it. I tried the church thing and it's not working. Man, look around. We all have that sinful nature inside of each of us. Welcome to First Baptist. This is who we are. We're saints and we're sinners at the same time, in the same heart. We have that same sinful nature raging against us. Quit beating yourself up and instead struggle against the sin. I mean, if God's grace is good enough for Steve Steele, trust me, it's good enough for you. And the second part of this is quit beating others up. The other side of this equation is people who walk into church and they've been going to church long enough and they are starting to feel pretty good about themselves. They think I am eight and a half out of 10. Hey, I might be nine out of 10. In fact, I don't covet that often. I think I am 10 out of 10. Like I'm doing well. Quit beating others up. You and Paul and I, we all have this battle raging within us. Who are you to judge others? Who are you to judge someone else? And when you hear of some great sin, somebody finally, finally, you know, admits or, or, or says their great sin to you, the wrong answer is this. <gasps> the right answer is this. Oh, man, I've been there. I, maybe I haven't done that exactly, but I know what you're talking about. Because it, it, it's got me. The sin that's still gripping me is, is, is destroying me from the inside out. I have done stuff like that. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think is the biggest sinner in the room right now? Go ahead, look around. Go ahead. Anyone? You don't know? I'll bet you're all wrong. 
I mean, one of you might be right, but uh, you don't know who the biggest sinner is in this, in, this, in this room. And the truth of the matter is, is it doesn't matter because we're all plagued with sin inside of us. Quit pretending you're better because it makes you feel better. My friend Augusto Aniano said this. He said, we have got to double down on being an instrument of grace to others. We have got to double down on showing grace to those around us because we're all sinners. Here's, here's my sort of so what. I didn't get it in your notes. If you want to write this at the bottom of your notes, write it at the bottom of your notes. Because it occurred to me while I was walking through Yosemite rather than before the notes were due. So, here it is. You ready? When there's no more struggle, you're in big trouble. When there's no more struggle, you're in big trouble. The problem is that some people say, this sin has gripped me, it's got me, it's never gone away, I'm just going to give up fighting against it. You are in massive trouble when you do that. It will destroy you. It will grab you and destroy you. When you give up the struggle. The people on the other side of the equation are those people who think they've got it figured out and they say, You know, I've got this figured out. I don't have to worry about it anymore. You are in such trouble the moment that happens. Would you just join me in prayer? God, we all have this sin raging inside of us. God, you know the sin that plagues my heart. You know the sin that plagues. There's somebody in here today, God, who walked in feeling so sinful, so broken, like you couldn't possibly redeem them or love them. Father God, I pray that you would show them that even your servants who wrote the New Testament struggled with this. That the pastors of churches struggle with this. God, we all struggle with this. Father, may we be people who embrace the fact that your grace is enough for us. God, may we be people who double down on showing your grace to others because we know how dark our own heart is. God, may we be people that never give up on the struggle, that we struggle against that persistent, constant sin in our life, God, that we never get tired of fighting it and relegating it to the back of our heart, and that we let your spirit fight for us, with us, and within us against the sin that plagues us all. But God, let us be instruments of grace to a world that is lost and hurting and full of that same sin without you in their heart. God, may we introduce them to you And may we be people of grace for those who are hurting. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.